For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. My guest this week has been top of my interview wish list since I began this podcast. If you've read Wardrobe Crisis, you will know about my huge respect for Catherine Hamnett, the original fashion activist, she of the slogan t-shirts, an outspoken British eco-warrior and fashion rebel. Today, on June the 5th, which is World Environment Day, Catherine is launching her Global Green New Deal Now campaign. And yes, there are t-shirts. Got certified organic, of course, and printed using eco-friendly inks. You can buy them from today at katherinehamnett.com. And all proceeds go to support Greenpeace and their work on climate justice. And talking of Greenpeace, actually, I've got an amazing show coming up for you soon on their work in the fashion industry. So what is with this Green New Deal thing? The original New Deal was Teddy Roosevelt's program to lift America out of the Great Depression in the 1930s. In 2009, the United Nations Environment Programme proposed what they called a Global Green New Deal. And the idea was to fight world poverty while reducing carbon dependency. In America, the idea has just recently been pushed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. You know about her, right? She's the 29-year-old congresswoman from the Bronx, who in the primaries last year beat an old white man who'd held his seat for 10 years. And if you haven't watched the doco Knock Down the House on Netflix, make that your homework. I just watched it. It's fabulous. Green New Deal was the name given to a non-binding resolution that was just introduced in the US Senate in March by AOC and Senator Edward Markey. The idea? To achieve a fair and just transition to net zero greenhouse gas emissions and to tie climate action to progressive goals like universal health care and a jobs guarantee. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, it was defeated 57 to 0. Basically, 43 Democrats voted present, so they abstained. And of course, all the coal fans and rich people and establishment figures who benefit from the current system used it to try to discredit AOC. But while its defeat in the Senate makes the future of Green New Deal legislation in the US look scuppered, for now at least, Green New Deal is now part of the national conversation in the US. You've even got Trump talking about it. I mean, of course, he thinks it's preposterous, I quote, and very easy to beat. But it's likely that climate will be a big issue as the 2020 election approaches. Now, we in Australia know how hard it is to get ordinary people to back climate action when it comes to voting. But all of this strikes me as significant rumblings of change. You've got 
all the school climate strikers and their ranks swelling daily in March in the UK, Labour's shadow Treasury Minister Clive Lewis and the Green Party MP Caroline Lucas tabled a Green New Deal private member's bill. And in April, Spain's pro-climate Spanish Socialist Party was re-elected on a Green New Deal platform. I just found that out, been doing some research. This week, Al Gore is in Brisbane, training the next batch of Australian climate leaders. So for my money, I'm happy to back Catherine Hamnett's call for a new focus on a global Green New Deal. Ah, oh, you're going to love this interview. You're going to hear all about Catherine's passion to change fashion and to fight for the environment. We also discuss her childhood, her love for clothes, her glitzy years as a designer in the early days, and what motivates her to be a change agent today. And you get to hear her tell the story about how she ambushed Margaret Thatcher in 1984 in her anti-nuclear missiles tea. That is one of my favourite stories. I think I've told it before on this podcast, but to hear her tell us just what it was like is gold. We also talk about her work with organic cotton, with saving the bees, and rather relishing being, as she puts it, the wicked witch who wasn't invited to the ball. (laughs) Ah, I love it. Dear listeners, I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. I can't wait to hear what you think. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And if you're listening in iTunes, please don't forget to hit subscribe. It really helps others find us if you leave a rating or a review too. So if you fancy it, go on. I'd love you to. But now let's hang out with an actual legend and her dog, Arthur. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I know that listeners will be absolutely thrilled to hear from you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You've got a lot of fans in this world. I want to begin, I think, just because it's only last week after when we were recording, with Copenhagen Fashion Summit. You kind of shook it up, didn't you? Well, I kind of slightly had it with those summits because I've just been to so many conferences and, you know, nothing changes. It's just loads of hot air. I mean, I think the worst one was Davos, wasn't it? They talk about climate. There's 1,500 private jets it was a I headline don't think maker. There were quite as many private jets, but it's still like our carbon footprint for what we actually achieve is like crap. You know, I mean, I was saying we could do this like, if we we're really serious, we'd do it on a webinar. We'd have a day and we could dig it, dig it, and we could watch it all over the world, you know, and we wouldn't be all flying over there. So, why did you go? Why did you take up the opportunity when you're invited? You were in conversation with Tim Blanks. It was on the second day. We talked about Brexit, but we also talked about some stuff we're going to get into shortly around the idea of a Green New Deal. But why did you accept that invitation? Well, I thought to some extent, I mean, I suppose I'm the founder member of Sustainability Road. I think I was the person that first blew the whistle on the industry. And, you know, I tend to talk straight and I realised that I've been a bit rubbed out of history. So I thought I'd go there a bit like the Wicked Witch. She wasn't invited to the ball, you know, (laughs) and let him have it. Because I think, you know, it's all too glitzy, you know, we're having glasses of champagne, we're talking about climate change, climate victims, people who are stranded without water in flooded areas with no food. And, you know, it's just the contrast is too severe and we're achieving, we're actually achieving fuck all. I mean, the, you know, environmental movement, like the peace movement, really considering how long it's been going and the amount of man hours involved, you know, we've achieved so little, we've really got to up our game and do things differently. So I went there to kind of to say that and to try and, you know, because there's a good audience, about 1,500 people or something go there. And then, of course, there's social media, which takes it out to hexadrillion if, you know, you're interesting. So I thought it was an opportunity 
to get some points over that I thought needed making, including my legislation idea, mm. which I think fixes everything. I will just say, before we talk about that, that you can watch videos from the summit. We'll share a link. You can watch back Catherine's conversation with Tim Blacks. So that was a very provocative statement just then, Catherine. Fix everything. Well, we have to. We have to. There's no future if we don't. But so what's your plan or what's your idea for what we need to do to kick this up a level? Well, obviously, we've got to really reinvent the fashion industry from scratch because the raw materials are, you know, extraction, production of raw materials is destroying the planet. You know, agrochemicals are in bed with cotton agriculture to a point and it's all about pesticides and herbicides and these are desertification, long-term contamination of the aquifer with pesticides which are World War II nerve gas derivatives, you know, it's crazy. We're going to get into the story of how you first engaged the Pesticide Action Network to look into cotton when you were producing your collections in, was it 1989? 89, yeah, we did some, it was actually research and it was the stuff we got from Pesticide Action Network UK who are a really excellent organisation that blew the whistle for me on that was the first huge problem that came up looking at you know whether we were making clothes destroying the planet or not harming any living things but I was looking at it in the interest of like right livelihood which is the Buddhist principle of earning your living without harming any living things and I think that sort of mission statement I tried to give job description to the fashion industry is it's our job to you know make our livings but actually for the good of all living things, because otherwise, you know, we won't survive. Mm. Yeah, cotton is 12% world agriculture, 1% of it is organic. Less so, than 1%, I heard the other day, yeah, and I thought it was it 2%, could. but she said it was something like 0.5 of a percent. Really? Well, so all cotton should be organic, because cotton agriculture has got to be considered a major contributor to climate change, just with the methane emissions from the fertilisers, which is methane's a molecule 200 times heavier than carbon dioxide, and that's going straight up. Desertification, yeah, exactly, long-term contamination of the aquifer, thousands of people dying of accidental pesticide poisoning, quarter of a million farmer suicides in the Vidarbha region in India due to pesticide debt. It's a complete nightmare, and it has to change. You know, it has to change. But what would you like to see happen in order to kickstart that change? Are you looking at government regulation? Well, big picture is government regulation on the entire clothing industry, that the only goods allowed into our economic blocks made outside, they've got to be made to the same standards outside as inside, so that means in compliance with REACH, you know, with EU, human rights, labour laws, freedom of association... You know, a real living wage, not the kind of crap so-called living wage that people have been given, which they can't actually exist on. This would have the effect of cleaning up clothing manufacturing in outsourced countries. Mm. So this is something which I think has got a lot of legs because I've talked about it at a few conferences and it's had a very good reception from trade unions, for instance, the chemical industry, EU chemical industry, and it would even appeal to people like Trump because it looks like protectionism, although it's actually an egalitarian way of making clothing. 
So like leveling the playing field, saying yeah, we all is. have to comply with these regulations. Yeah, so it are... makes American manufacturing, you know, suddenly affordable. It makes a European manufacturing affordable because it makes outsourced manufacturing more expensive. I like how you think that it would subversively appeal to Trump, even though that's not your plan. Well, you know, it would be great. You know, it's if people do the right thing, even for the wrong reasons, you know, the most important thing to do is the right thing. So, yeah, I think it could appeal to him, which gives it more power. So um, I want to present this to the UN and okay. the EU. And, you know, hopefully Britain doesn't leave. But, you know, if Britain leaves, all the women present it to the British Parliament as well. You know, in the case of Brexit, if it happens, please God, it doesn't. But if it does, we present it to them as well, because it's a way of stimulating employment in the UK and cutting pollution worldwide and also raising the standard of living, the quality of life of hundreds of millions of people. Presumably it wouldn't be that easy to implement, though, because you've got to deal with lots of different country regulations in yeah, different countries. Yeah, well, the thing is, they can to go out of the window because mm. ones they've got to look at now are the EU ones. And, you know, I'm sending a warning notice out because this is going to happen. So anybody in the developing world that's making clothing better start studying reach and seeing which chemicals they can use. And they also should look at EU employment laws and seeing how they should be treating their staff because they're going to have to be doing this if they want to sell into the EU-Japan trading block, which is the biggest, richest trading block in the world, and, you know, the target for all their production, because these countries are, you know, export economies. Mm, it's a great idea. I like that you're putting it out in the world. What reactions have you had? I mean, you said it on stage last week. Everybody um, likes it. There's always cheers. <laughs> All right, you started telling us a story of cotton and I wanted just to sort of drill down on what your idea right now for political solutions looks like. But let's dial it back to that time in the late 80s when you started to question the cotton that you were using at Catherine Hamlet. Well, it was horrific too. You know, you couldn't actually get organic cotton in any sort of thickness, probably sort of thinner than this table. So we were no using demand. a lot of cotton... Well, it just people didn't know there was anything wrong with it. And it was always, you know, when pesticides were introduced, everybody said, oh, yippee, you know, we don't have to handpick the insects off. Nobody knew that there was anything wrong with them. Of course, there's everything wrong with them. Um, but there you wasn't also any didn't around. know. You ha you then no, I was completely, in, you know, the inter I didn't know until we'd done this research that we were doing any harm. We just thought cotton, fabulous natural fibre, one of the most beautiful fibres that you can possibly wear because it exists in everything from like the finest muslins to the heaviest canvases obviously you know indigo denim infinite poplin shirtings you know it's the most versatile incredibly comfortable to wear long lasting beautiful to look at anyway there wasn't any and so, at the time you had something like what 700 stores or something you were in. I mean, yeah, Catherine Hamlet was a big countries. brand. Yeah. You were making, you were very famous for denim things, for obviously yeah, the t-shirts, we'll get onto that. Yeah, but you were yeah, using a lot of cotton. Making clothes. Yeah, we were making loads. What made you question it in the first place? Well, I'd always been interested in Buddhism and I think the, sort of the challenge when you kind of, everybody sort of goes into fashion, you know, designers want to be rich and famous, you know, the best designer in the world. But I think the challenge is you can be successful by being a bad person. The big challenge is trying to be as successful in those sort of terms, but a decent human being. And so I'd always tried to do that, treat it really well. And, you know, we'd always been using recycled paper because we thought that was a good idea. It's also a mistake. It's actually not as good as Forestry Stewardship Council certified new wood really? pulp. Yeah, after 30 years of doing recycled packaging in fact that was complete waste of energy oh my god and anyway I wanted to check it was in line with right livelihood which is the Buddhist principle and it's all about being happy like 
Aristotle said, you know, it was given in 250, 350 BC, whenever he was, that to lead a happy life, you have a good life, you know, what's good, but it's the eightfold path. One of the ingredients is right livelihood, which we just mentioned, earning a living without harming any mm. living things. And it's also and about how we define success. And frankly, well, at the end of the 80s, we weren't defining success in those terms. No, it was rich and famous, definitely. You know, it's like loads of money and us having, you know, the dream lifestyle, concording all over the world. And actually, you know. don't you think we're back there a bit culturally? Well, the hotels have all been ripped out now. I mean, you can't stay at the plaza anymore because, I mean, Trump turned it into apartments. You know, they ripped out the beautiful Ritzes and got rid of the fabulous furniture so they just look like any old Marriott. I mean, I think we had sort of the golden times of, like, the Sega chain of hotels in Europe owned by the Aga Khan, which were just divine. Anyway, You did have a then. fabulous fashion I'd, life. Had the most, you know, we did fashion shows all over the world. We did the Siakti Vare. We were, you know, up there. I suppose in probably about the top four fashion brands in the world at one point. But all the time, you've got this underlying knowledge that in order to be truly successful and authentic to what you believe in, you have to do right by other people too, and the yeah, planet. Yeah, well, we thought we were till eighty nine, mm. and then I did this research, and of course, so what came did back you discover? Everything, just absolutely everything. So you, appalling. you commissioned Cotton. a report from the Pesticide Action well, Network. Well, we did research, in, you know, internally. What is the social and environmental impact of the clothing and textile industry? And so, you know, all raw materials were looked at. I said, well, how's it? It's all fine. And the guy said to me, I'm really sorry, but it's not. And, you know, put it on the table. And it was, you know, tens of thousands of deaths from pesticide poisoning. I mean, even it's migration, it's HIV, it's everything, it's biodiversity. But so that's even that, herbicides they use stops the decompositional process that often happen in rivers of sea and seas of, you know, natural materials so that the minerals can't be re-released into the environment, the plants can't uptake them. So, but that piece of work you did internally then led to you and your team isolating cotton as the big fibre problem? No, it wasn't or just what cotton, happened? it was everything. I mean, okay. it's leather, it's nylon, it's PVCs, like the worst. You know, it's synthetics, it's even wool, the wool processing, you know, wool in Australia. Probably Australians should never have had sheep in the first place. So you looked at all the different materials that you're using. Yeah, everything. But then you shit. started to work on this big cotton piece. Well, I've been, you know, I've been trying to work on all of them at the same time. But initially, we raised money on our genes line to give to Pesticide Action Network because they were the most advanced. They'd got great projects in Africa where they were teaching farmers to convert from conventional cotton farming to. Mali? Well, they were in Senegal. They're Burkina Faso. They're in Ethiopia. They're all over the place. I mean, the present projects have actually been audited by the German government and declared to be the best agricultural projects in Africa because, you know, on top of growing the cotton organically, to grow it organically, you've got to rotate it with other crops. They're rotating it with food. Yep. And so they're getting food security. They're getting additional cash crops. If you go places like Mali and the French stop them growing food and so they, you go to the villages and you find they're actually starving, you know, when grass is thigh high. And I mean, I'm a crap gardener. I could have written a book of plants I have killed. <laughs> but I know that when grass is that high, you know, you would have so many vegetables that are ready to eat. And they were starving because they were stopped growing food, told to grow cotton, get the money, and then buy the food. And we actually, a bunch of people went into the village because they saw the farmers were starving to buy food for this village. They couldn't believe how expensive the food was. 
But the story of all of this stuff is just it's, so rooted in colonial power. Post-colonial colonialism. I mean, Mali, it's disgraceful, but I suspect it's disgraceful everywhere. Let's talk about India, because the story of... You mentioned before Monsanto, I think I mentioned Monsanto, but the story of genetically modified cottonseed in India is kind of horrific. I mean, basically all... I forgot, we'll share an accurate percentage, but it's something like more than 95, maybe 98% of cotton grown in India is actually... BT now. Yeah. And it doesn't work. It's not, you know, but it's BT expensive. BT is genetically modified. It's supposed to be genetically modified not to use pesticide because it's got... Is it Botulinum thuringiensis, which is the BT, what BT stands for, which is like a fungus which is toxic to certain kinds one. of insects... I inject in, into it, but it's insufficient and the insects become immune. So the farmers have got to buy seeds. Instead of saving their own, the seeds are really expensive. Then they've got to buy pesticide because the BT is not working. They've usually got to sign a contract for the pesticide before they can even get a contract to sell their cotton. Can you hear Arthur snoring? He's so nice. He's <laughs> annoying. Said, Mum, I've heard all of this about 75 times. Boring. Yeah, boring. Um, just for listeners who wonder... If this old man Arthur is snoring in this room, it's my husband. <laughs> we we'll share a picture. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah Arthur is a Yorkie poo. He weighs six point nine kilos, and um, yeah, he's my husband. You know, nobody else wants to sleep with me. <laughs> if you barked, I would be very happy. Can we make you bark, Arthur? If I say no, go. if he's going to bark, there you are. Thank you. So. Less amusingly, back on this Indian story of cotton, you learnt these shocking things. How did you feel? I mean, you're using these fibres and you're part of the system. Well, I kind of stopped. And, you know, so one licence peeled away after the other because they didn't really see the light. But you actually tried... No, but first you tried to switch to organic cotton. Well, there wasn't any cotton around. But so, weren't you, like, lied to by some Italian supplier who switched it all out again? Well, I was using... It was one collection I was doing in Italy, and I found sustainable cotton. And they substituted it at the last moment. They wanted to put some chlorine wash on it. And I said, you can't do that, it's not sustainable. And, you know, chlorine's another nightmare. The cold kind of denim processing thing, complete nightmare. And he said, if you carry on this ethical and environmental shit, you can take your collection and fuck off. So you was, did? <laughs> well, I didn't have a lot of options, really. But I was devastated, and yeah. this anima was just... De- I mean, I nearly cried because I couldn't believe that people could think like that. But you'd also gone to all that trouble to try to make the change and to show yeah, it could be done, well, and then it didn't yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there was sort of repeated banging your head against a brick wall, but, I mean, his was kind of... At least, you, could, you know, he vocalised what a lot of people feel silently. But also when you were trying to source organic cotton alternatives, you were finding that they weren't available on the market, right? There was no demand for it at that time, really. Well, there was very little. There were a few places. There were people like Pratipa Syntex in Indore, who are a big Indian mill, putting about 7,000 people, and they've got their own farmers. They were the first into organic because they're Brahmins. I mean, Indians are great because the Brahmins are top caste. They see their duty, first duty is looking after the poor. And so they've been doing that for a generation. So they were producing organic cotton. They've now got, you know, amazing water treatment. They've got social housing. They've got schools. I mean, it's actually exemplary setup. So there were places you could get on. So I worked with them for a bit, but I got rid of a lot of other licenses. 
because they just weren't playing along. And it's like, it's a moral dilemma. What are you going to do? Are you going to carry on earning your living knowing that you're earning it at the cost of environmental degradation and human suffering? You know, going to carry on with your jet set life, with your beautiful parties in Paris that people talk about 15 years and it's coming to the expense of that lot. I don't see how you can. And I think well, the way I did it wasn't the cleverest way. I mean, if you're really being smart, you'd face one in and face the other out. But no, you know, I had to go to clunk, which was so we lost 700 retail customers in 40 countries. But, you know, I can live with that. You know, hopefully we'll get them back. Catherine... I always look up to you greatly because most people don't have the... Is it even guts or is it... You can tell me what it is. But most people wouldn't have said, well, bugger it, if I can't do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to walk away. Most people would say, well, oh, I'll compromise. I'll compromise my ethics or I'll compromise my big ideas and just tinker around the edges a bit until I fix it. But you made a statement that is very powerful. I think that's why people look up to you in the sustainability movement because it's like it shows making a stand is possible and sometimes maybe we need to make more stands in this space which I think it involves personal sacrifice people don't want to do it I understand well, I mean, that it's like James Comey you know FBI director got fired by Trump mm. he said something's worth getting fired for and so I kind of fired myself <laughs> but it was easy for me because my own boss I mean most people are designers or they're CEOs they're not free I you know I had the freedom to be able to do whatever I like with my business whereas most people are you know, they can't really do that. I but, mean, I wish they'd have a go a bit more. But what if the answer is actually to stop doing this stuff? I mean, that's one of the things we grapple with in this conversation and we don't really want to, to talk too much about it or examine it too deeply. Do we need to actually stop producing, stop fashion, stop... Well, I think there are too many clothes. I mean, I think you've... I was talking stop shopping. to... I still, well, I think people have stopped shopping. I've talked to people that are very high up in huge American companies turning over 18 billion. They are in deep shit. You see what's happening with the Arcadia group. You never thought anything would go wrong with Topshop. Well, Philip Green went wrong with Topshop. Well, he's, Philip Green's just disgusting creep who should be stripped of his knighthood and forced to pay back the poor pensioners whose money he's stolen and given to his wife. But in Do we get done in Australia for (laughs) slander? Or something that could be... I mean, it's true, it's not slander. I mean, that's what he did. We're allowed to say what we think. In fairness, I think that part, not all, but part of the woes that Topshop are facing come from that, come from people turning away from the company and him. Well, well, I'm not really sure think if that people, people are, are boycotting think, him. I think young women think, are you joking? I'm not sure how many of them, but I'm not convinced that people are not shopping at Topshop because of fast fashion. I they've think, moved to Boohoo. They've I moved to Pretty Little Thing. Clothes. Yeah, but they haven't turned away because of sustainability. They haven't gone no, fast no, fashion's no. a problem. No, they've no, just moved no. their money no, to I, a I, new I, kind of fast fashion. I think fashion. there's something else going on, is that the industry thinks there's an excessive supply for the existing market. You know, and even if it's dirt cheap or whatever level everybody's suffering because there's just more clothes out there than people want to buy. Did you read that thing in The Guardian a little while ago and we'll share a link that was about how the conversation around fast fashion has been dominated perhaps too much by people of my generation that remember the heyday of Topshop and talk about Zara and H&M as fast fashion's big problem but we've neglected completely Fashion Nova, all those online stores that are speaking to Gen Z and they're selling five dollar boob tubes based on what kim kardashian wears yesterday that can be made in a couple of days 
we're totally not talking to that market. There's still people mainlining fast fashion that's made in despicable conditions and we're not even talking about half those companies. Well, you know, you need to look at some of the big brands as well. I mean, like people like Benetton haven't paid their compensation yet for the Rana Plaza disaster and that family is so rich they should really be ashamed of themselves. So you can don't just go into Boohoo, you're going to Benetton and you're probably buying clothes that are made in pretty appalling conditions. I'm going to come back to that question, which I think is an existential one. Do we just need to smash down capitalism? Do we need to stop consuming, stop buying fashion, stop making fashion? Well, fashion's going to stop making itself if so many people are going to the wall. I mean, there's going to be like a natural coal. But whether it's a healthy natural coal, you know, whether the... Yeah, I don't think it's going to be the bad ones that go to the wall. I think it's going to be a lot of the good ones as well. But I think fashion should also try a lot harder. You know, I mean, there's things like, you know, Better Cotton Initiative, which everybody thinks is marvellous, but they still use pesticide. And, like, one gram of pesticide can kill something like 35 million bees. You know, so we should really be looking at things that are eliminating pesticide use altogether. You know, Marks and Spencers are using it. You know, what are Burberry's using? Why isn't there cotton organic? I mean, mm. at that Copenhagen thing, I went to one of the dinners and I sat next to the woman from H&M. And she, you know, they use quite a bit. But I said, why isn't all your cotton organic? And she said, we can't get it. And I said, look, you know, if you tell the farmers now you know, you want X amount of organic cotton in five years' time, they will plant it for you. I actually just recorded a podcast, which will run after this one, with Camilla Jorgensen from Best Seller, which is a large Danish fashion company. And it's a very interesting insight into actually what the stages are and what has to happen to transition a supply chain. So if you're interested and you work in sustainability, perhaps in a big company, that's an interesting one to listen to. I want to talk more about what you think fashion can do, Catherine. You mentioned before that you were bringing sustainability into the conversation way before most people had even considered it as a word. What role do you think fashion can play in making our environmental future more possible? I don't even know how I can ask the question, because how can fashion have a role, can it? Well, I think it can, because, you know, we're global citizens. You know, if you say, like, a beehive is a product of nature, so is the internet. So if fashion employs a billion people, that's one in six of the world population... Fashion could turn itself into political force, you know, globally. We could, uh, but the only thing that will change anything, because it's all about legislation, is the only thing that affects politicians' behaviour is something that threatens their ability to get re-elected. So we all, whatever country we're in, say, you know, we want a Green New Deal. Part of the Green New Deal could be my law, which only allows goods in, made mm-hmm. to the same standards outside as inside, which inflicts reach as a chemical level that you cannot go below globally, that would be a really good start. Just, just Catherine, for listeners who don't know what a Green New Deal is, could you just give us a top-line summary about what made you start thinking around this, what it is? Well, the Green New Deal, I mean, I suppose it was watching, you know, we heard about Green New Deal, and then I saw... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is wonderful film on democracynow.org. If you actually Google OAC at democracynow.org, you'll see this cute little film that she's made, which is set in the future, 2045, how we actually achieved a Green New Deal. And so it's like the Democrats help take control of Congress in 2018. 2020, they take control of the upper house. 
divest from fossil fuels, go into renewables, create new sustainable jobs, teaching is valued as a profession, reforestation, cleaning up the environment, this creates huge employment and we devolve into a different sustainable world. You watched that and you thought, what about a global New Deal? Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching it and I thought, oh, she's great. It's a bit, little bit fluffy on the technical side, but there's a load of engineers that can bring that in because it's all utterly doable. We've all got the most amazing renewable potentials in the UK. We've got the best renewable potentials in Europe. You know, so you have sort of 10% European potential, like Australia. You've got all that desert, which you could be using for solar energy as opposed to coal. The sunniest country I can think of. You could be exporting hydrogen fuel cells. You could be doing, you know, whatever. You know, we could do it. Before we um, met today, Catherine, we had a brief chat about Australia. I'm pulling a face because I love Australia. It's my adopted home. I love Australians. I love the possibilities that we have to make our country a global leader in some of this stuff around renewables, for example. We're not doing it. And we've just voted back in as Prime Minister for a second term, a coal fan who brought a lump of coal into Parliament to talk about how awesome it was. You said to me, you felt disappointed or you actually said, what's going on with that? My father. And then you told me a story about your father and his Australian connection. What yeah, was it? yeah, my father was in Changi. He spent three years in Changi, he was shot down in Burma, a plane full of bombs, and taken to Singapore Hospital. And it was he was in Singapore Hospital, very badly burnt when it was taken by the Japanese. So he spent three years in Changi, and he said the Australians were the bravest and the funniest, and what which an is the supreme I mean, kind of accolade Chinese. you can give to any nation. I think, yeah, I think it was beyond hell. Mm. Did he beyond talk about hell. it when you were a kid? Not a lot. I mean, he would give you the odd horror story, like they had a radio hidden in their hut and somebody grasped them up to the Japanese and so the Japanese got all the inhabitants of these huts, which were huge, out and lined them up, then pulled out the ten tallest men, who are all Australians, and beheaded them in front of everybody. Makes me cry. You know, and that was from BBC World Service, you know which was, you know, the only way they could find out what was going on happening in the world. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was unbelievable. There was a Siam railway, everybody was dying. There was the brutality of the guards. They were starving. I often feel for men who went through those experiences and the the cultural silence that I think they faced when they came home because it wasn't a culture of... Imagine the trauma you're bringing home. Well, it I wasn't think a culture of talking you can't, about it. You can't... I don't think you can talk to people about it who haven't shared the same experience right. because they don't understand. They literally don't understand. So the only people he could talk to about it were people that had been there. And, of course, you know, it was tough. But still, you know, he survived and went on to have an amazing career. But, you know, what he said about the Australians being the bravest and funniest... Good on us. If only we could be brave enough to transition to renewables. Not even that hard. I yeah, know that it's you good feel... to be funny to start off with as well, because we if you're funny, you make people it. laugh. You've got them. So sort of as a strategy for selling it, make them last first. I know you studied at St Martin's. I know mm. you loved textiles when you were a kid at school. Mm. Where does the fashion thing come from in you? Your father was a diplomat, right? Yeah. I don't know, I was surrounded, like my family were very into fashion. My mother was wonderful dressers, worse, sisters, grandmas, great-grandmas. You know, we lived in France, this brought up on Vogue and Elle, French Elle, when it first came out. 
And, you know, people were making their own clothes. My mother made her own clothes, my clothes, by beautiful fabrics in Liberty. So I was introduced to gorgeousness early. Lived in France, used to go around all the chateau and see the incredible fabrics and paintings and costumes. And, yeah, I was kind of soaked in it. But that wasn't actually my first career choice. I wanted to be an archaeologist or a actress or a film director. Uh, but my parents said, I was 13, they said you've got to earn your own living, we can give you an education, but that's it. And they said, well, archaeologists, you need a private income, there's no female film directors. Oh, God. Because they were sort of Agnes Varda, that was about it. I mean, there's still about 5% film directors are female, although they're starting to come up on the inside. Trapeze artist, I think. Stop I don't think it. I was particularly good at that. <laughs> Did you want to do that? Yeah, oh, I was in love with the circus, trapeze artist happened. <laughs> Heaven. Do you still want to run away and join I the circus? No, I don't think I'd do that. still like to be an archaeologist, maybe, or a, a film director. And I've had this kind of chance to do bits of film directing. My latest obsession is geology, you know, history of the earth, form it, how the earth is formed, mm. and, you know, love all of that. But earning money was practical. Yeah, earning money. Make I just thought, label. what the fuck am I going to do? One of the stories I tell is I put the pin in the careers book, the truth, it, it landed on fashion, I think. The truth is it had probably been opened that page quite a few times. I had one of my best friends at school. I said, I don't want to do, and I was getting pressured. I went to the careers officer, and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be happy. And she said, isn't that rather selfish? So is that anyway, true? I that is amazing. Anne-Marie Stoddard and said, look, I don't know what to do. And she said, look, I'm going to go to St Martin's to do fashion. Why don't you do the same thing? I said, oh, all right. But also, I'd actually looked at who earns the most money. And fashion designers, the most overpaid people on earth, for zero work. So I thought, that'll do fine. <laughs> I reckon that's a controversial <laughs> statement now. There'll be people saying it's bloody hard work. Well, it's not as hard. I mean, people earn five million a year, you know, designing clothes. Mm. And they're not working 24 hours a day. I can't say ever reach scale. Those quite dizzying heights, but... It was great at the time and it allowed me to bring up my two sons and pay for their education and show them the world. Where does the activism come from in you? I think my family were all, you know, my grandfather was Welsh and there were always dinner party conversations about politics. My other grandfather, I think, had been a lay preacher as well as an engineer. We lived in France and, you know, in France, if you buy a kilo of onions and there's a bad one in it, you go home, you take it back to the shop and they replace it. And I was always the one that was given the job of taking back the bad onion. So, you know, it sort of kind of started at an early age. Yeah, and I mean, lived in France. Was... What, you're a vintage complainer? Oh, yeah, I'm a, absolutely sort of hardened. Yeah, I was probably sort of, yeah, I've been complaining from the word go. Brilliant. But yeah, I mean, you'd, I lived in France and I was the only foreign kid in school, so it was kind of learn French in three months or die. But it did a little teach me to be in a minority of one. And that it's really important to, if you don't stand up for rights, you just get run over. So I've been doing it for an early age. Yeah, take this onion back immediately. <laughs> oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my pants feel thick. This is a waste of time, I tell you where, okay? I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you